While many 48-year-olds are thinking about their next careers, jockey Frankie Dettori is riding higher than ever in what he's always done. Plus, we pay tribute to the late, great Jack Whitaker by reliving the conversation we had with him last October. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hit-bombing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, or your podcatcher app. And of course, in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. And we want to make sure that you vote for us in the upcoming Fan Choice Awards at America's Best Racing. It happens in November after the Breeders' Cup. And yes, Best Racing Podcast is one of the categories. So you know what to do, ITG Army. If you like this show, vote for us in November in the Fan Choice Awards at AmericasBestRacing.net. The great American golfer of the early 20th century, Bobby Jones, remarked after watching Jack Nicklaus win the 1965 Masters, Nicklaus played a game with which I am not familiar. You could say the same for jockey Frankie Dettori, who is having a year with which most racing observers are unfamiliar. Twelve Group 1 wins already at the time of this recording, and more than four months still left in the year. Advertisers now getting a split. He's running about quite wildly on the outside. Brando has moved up. Advertise digs deep. Advertise takes the lead again, and Advertise came away to win. Advertise, man of the moment, Frankie Dettori yet again. Dettori is just four Group 1 wins away from his best-ever season, 2001, when he took 16. Considering what he's been through in his career and his age, 48, Frankie's performance this year has been absolutely remarkable. We'll get into all of that as we welcome in a man who's had a pretty good seat to watch several of Dettori's Group 1 wins this year, veteran race caller Richard Hoyles, who joins us once again here on In the Gate. What has struck you the most about the year that Frankie has put together? Well, Dottori is, is a confidence rider. He's he's one of those, I'm sure you have the equivalent in, in the U.S. When things begin to go well for Dottori, whether it be on a single card, as in that day when he rode the seven winners uh, at Ascot, and when he had the first four winners at the Royal Meeting this year, uh, he really does seem to be able to ride to a different level. It is exactly the opposite when things go badly. You know, you do get the, the tremoring lip and the, the, psyche, the slightly sulky demeanor. But it just appears that this period, which, which really started with Annapurna's victory in the Oaks, has just led to an astonishing level of performance in, in the top races. I was just looking at the numbers. He's only 21st in the jockey's table in the UK in terms of number of winners. He's only actually written 33 winners in the UK. And yet nine of those have been Group 1 successes. And if you were to rearrange the table on prize money, he would be topped by over 2 million. So I think it's, it's partly, obviously, he's riding very good horses, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But it's also that sort of innate confidence, which seems to be so important to the way that he rides. Well, that's a question that comes up both in horse racing and in automobile racing, is how much of his success is the rider and how much is the set of horses he's been riding, like a Nabel and Stradivarius? Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair analogy, isn't it? If you stick anyone in a probably NASCAR for you and certainly Formula One for for Europe, you know most people could win in a Mercedes Formula One car who are lining up on the grid in that particular race. There are a few races which Dottori has won through brilliance. I think Starcatcher's victory in the Irish Oaks, where he stacked them up and then 
ran away from them was was one of those. But then he nearly cocked up on a naval, to be honest, in the King George. The thing for Frankie is he's not someone who will travel the length and breadth of the country looking for small winners. So it's always important for him to have a big retainer. It used to be Godolphin. When he left Godolphin, most people thought that would be the end of things. And he stumbled or was good enough to get the catter job at the right time. And when that sort of began to drift away, it's really the association with John Gosden that's taken things to a, a new level. And if you look at the 12 Group 1 successes he's had in Europe since the Oaks in early June, right the way through to the Meister Geese with Advertise, you know, you've got Stradivarius, as you mentioned, you've got Enable, you had two Darn Hot who finally came to the party and won a couple of, of Group 1s. And then scattered around, you've got an Anna Perna, you've got a Coronet, you've got the ones that are only Starcatcher, who's probably only going to win one. So yes, it's definitely underpinned by having a good stable, and but really enable Stradivarius, the two that are underpinning his success, older horses that are finding that we haven't got the younger horses coming through to challenge them. And so their running run is, is highly likely to continue, particularly with enable at York next week if she goes for the Yorkshire Oaks. So you could conceivably be talking about the Tory riding 15 Group 1 winners and 12 of them in the UK. And So it is already his most successful season ever for Group 1 successes domestically. I was just looking again at some of the numbers, and if you add up the period between 2019 and 2013, so you're, sorry, 2009 and 2013, so you're talking about five seasons, he only rode 10 Group 1 winners in total in that period. And yet for many people, that would have been a far more successful period for him as a whole than it would be now in terms of winners. But nine at this late stage in his career, he's 48, is quite astonishing. He did manage seven a long time ago in 1999. And it's nowhere near a record. Ryan Moore clocked up 15 and 17. But uh, I suppose the other point to make is that you, you made the point about the, the top table. Aidan O'Brien hasn't visited it as often as he often does in this country. Good three-year-olds, the Magna Grecias, the Anthony Van Dykes, the Hermosas, haven't gone on to be superstars. And as a result, the, the door's been left more open for, for the Gosden horses to sort of walk through. So maybe that's the other side of the coin, is that Aidan O'Brien... He's had a reasonable season, but he hasn't dominated to the same degree as he did the year when he you know, broke the record for the number of Group 1 successes in, in, in 12 months right around the globe. I want to go back to what you were saying about Frankie Dettori and Godolphin. And for those of our listeners who don't remember, Frankie Dettori had written exclusively for Godolphin since 1994 when Sheikh Mohammed had started Godolphin. That arrangement ended in 2012 when Dettori tested positive for cocaine. What thought did you have at that time about whether Dottori would not just return to the sport, but return to the pinnacle of the sport? I think many people thought that it was entirely questionable. And to be fair, he, he floundered for quite a bit around the 2013-2014 period. He was really saved by the introduction, of because he was never really going to go to Coolmore. He had the occasional ride, but he wasn't certainly going to have the quantity of rides that he'd, he'd had through Godolphin. The saving grace for him was probably the beginning of the association with Catter because he made noises about, you know, I'm going to come back, I'm going to compete for the jockey's title. But those that know Frankie know he just would not put in the miles and the dedication that's necessary. It's not like your system, you know, in the States where you're based at the, the one place for a period of time. It's the travel that, that kills championship ambitions in this country. It's done by the number of wins. So as a result, the prize money that he's gaining through the bigger successes are largely irrelevant. It's just one winner, the same as it would be on a wet, windy Monday night at, at Wolverhampton. And Dottori would never go for those sort of rides. So I think many people felt that it would be 
a slow demise and probably the end. Um, but he stumbled across good horses at the right time, and that was, that was important, particularly, I think, Golden Horn, who was quite important in putting him back on the map with another derby win and a very, very good ride in, in the arc. And, of course, he also was involved uh, with other decent horses of Cata, like Trev initially, even though that ended in tears as regards his association with her. So he was saved, really, by his ability to pull out big race successes. But that period we mentioned of 2010 through to, to 2014, was really his barren spell. But from 2015 onwards, things have, have really picked up. And I say Golden Horn had a fair bit to do with that. But obviously his association with John Gosden, which came through the likes of Golden Horn, have also been particularly significant. And to your point, he's started just about a quarter of the number of races that O'Sheen Murphy has, and yet, as you say, way ahead in the money total. We're talking with veteran British race caller Richard Hoyles here on In the Gate. Now, as you also mentioned, DeTore won not just four races in one day at Royal Ascot this year, but the first four races of the day, which culminated with Stradivarius's Gold Cup, one of those 12 Group 1s at this recording. That would be amazing for any rider to do, but... The aura it created with the rider being Frankie Dottori was palpable. How does his charisma compare with other riders you've seen in your career? Well, I think, strangely enough, the man who might be able to step into the void in time is Oshin Murphy. But there is no doubt that when we work on, on television and we're talking about potential stories, no disrespect to, to Ryan Moore and Aidan O'Brien, but you're hoping that they don't dominate to the degree that you're talking to them six or seven times during the course of the week. It's a business <laughs> operation for them. And as such, they, t- they do tend to conduct themselves afterwards in that sort of manner. Whereas the Tory, he, he, rides, he rides on the adrenaline of the crowd and the atmosphere. And the, particularly, I think, the, the reception we had with Crystal Ocean and Enable, which was you know, one of our great jewels in, in recent years, he really does seem to feed off that. And obviously he had history with the seven races that he'd won at, um, at Ascot in the past. So when we got to four, then there was an even bigger meeting in a way at, you know, at Royal Ascot. There was just that possibility. Could he, you know, could he really do it on a Royal meeting? And if so, what were the implications going to be for the, for the betting industry? And it was an amazing experience. Not, uh, the fifth race was a, a 30 runner handicap. And one has to say that, I thought he would disappear without tracing. That's one of the harder races to call. You're trying to keep an eye out for him. And yet there he was, right out in front. And for a moment, I have to admit, at the furlong pole, I genuinely, genuinely thought that he was going to win. And that would have created you know, all merry, merry hell already going into the last, <laughs> just in terms of the price capitulations that you'd have had on the horses because of the amount of roll-up money. As it happens, his last horse ran like an absolute donkey, and it would have been a very much of an anti-climax. But for that moment, before he got run down, but he was slightly disappointed. He kicked a bit on, on, on Turgon in that race. He may well have held on had he just saved some of that adrenaline. But it was great. And Ron Ascot, I can't draw the right analogies for America, but you would have presumably days that are sort of very much fans' days, if you like, where the atmosphere on track is very good. But for Royal Ascot, it's a little bit more refined. You know, you've got the Royal Enclosure down in front of the winning post. People are more spread out. They're not regular race goers. You don't get the same sense of excitement that you do at a Chelten Festival, for example, over jumps or maybe even at a derby where it's very much more of a people's race, some Goodwood races. So it's a bit more refined. I've never really heard Ascot have that sort of reaction, cumulative. And when Stradivarius won, it was four, and as you say, four on the bounce. When Turgenev was clear a furlong and a half out, you could really feel the place 
buzzing. And that doesn't often happen at, at the Royal Meeting in Ascot, where I say fashion and ceremony rather get in the way of atmosphere at times. Now, you started to allude to it, but obviously many of these horses he's ridden will have a chance to add to that total of 12 Group 1s as of this recording as we get towards the business end of the year. Big days are coming in Ireland, the UK, France, of course, with the Arc de Triomphe, and then the Breeders' Cup here in America, where Dottori has 14 career wins. Which do you think are his best chances to add to that Group 1 total? Yeah, let's start at the top. Enables the obvious one. She had a hard race in the King George, and I must admit, I did think that she wouldn't go to York as a result, but uh, they decided to go the way of the Yorkshire Oaks, which might be frustrating for the Tory because he would already have had the ride on, on Anna Perna, who now may go to the Pre-Vermeil, uh, where again, she would have a chance. I'd be a bit miffed, actually, if I was the owner of, <laughs> of Anna Perna. You've waited patiently in the wings with the Yorkshire Oaks as your target, and then you get sort of tilted at the altar by Enable turning up there. <laughs> um, so Enable is the obvious one. She's got, chance, she's got chances in the Yorkshire Oaks, which is a great one, a soft one, a group one, so a, a soft one. And then obviously she's got a chance of a third arc. She's had a busier season. She had a tough race at Ascot. It didn't go her way, and she should have won more easily than she did, but she had a tough trip. So there's two in terms of for Enable. Advertise, there is the possibility of, I suppose, the Abbey if you went down to five films, but it's not so easy for him. Two Darn Hot's been retired. Stradivarius will go for the million-pound uh, bonus race, which is a Group 2 race at uh, York. Then has got the opportunity of going to presumably either Ascot or maybe even again abroad. But again, it's probably only got one left in him. The one that hasn't been mentioned much is King of Comedy. We've got a very poor bunch of milers at all ages. And King of Comedy ran well at Ascot to finish in, in second place. But he... He messes around. He's a funny horse. But if he puts it all together, so he is likely to be his representative in the Judmont, uh, Judmont International Race, which gets us underway on day one of York. Crystal Ocean will be the horse that is in chief opposition to the King of Comedy. So you've sort of got three or four there. And then again, you've got the likes of, of Coronet and Starcatcher, who they're not nailed on to win a Group 1, but they will be competing in things like the Phillies and Mares race on Champions Day. That's quite a weak one. And then you're going to have other horses that sort of come out of the woodwork for the two-year-olds towards the end of the season. It'll be interesting to see whether he becomes associated with any of them because his agent is presumably finding it pretty hard, pretty easy to get on these sort of horses now with um, him riding at, in such a hot streak. So I think there's every chance that... One would think so. Yeah, domestically, I reckon you could you could certainly say a dozen. If you add in, obviously, as you mentioned, you've, you've already got 12 if you include the three European ones that you've already got in France. So you could be looking at him having between 15 and 17 Group 1 successes as a 48-year-old rider, and that would be more than double he'd achieved in, in any other year, which is quite an astonishing achievement, and that prize money column will just keep ratcheting up. As you, you mentioned a good analogy with Sheen Murphy, who's been probably the leading rider now this year. He probably deserves to win the title, but the Tory is still carrying far more headlines than Murphy at the moment. But it's interesting that Murphy, Murphy is a name you'll hear an awful lot more of because he's quite savvy. He's quite individualistic. He struggled a little bit when he first wrote out his claim. He was viewed as cocky within the weighing room. He's not really. He's just he's just his own personality, and it's a little bit off the wall at times, but he's not afraid of that. He's got an interesting character, and I think he is preparing himself. I think he's seen the Tory. He's realized that his selling point over a more dour Ryan Moore is the fact that he will engage. He will do weird things on social media, and as a result, I think he does think that he can move into that Tory void, but he's just going to have to wait a bit, I think.
One thing you mentioned about Frankie Dettori also struck me. You said he the travel would kill him. He doesn't make that kind of effort. But he's always been known as a physical fitness freak, which is why he's in such good shape at 48. So where does he make that extra effort and where does he not? I think he makes the extra effort because he wants to ride good horses. I don't think he's motivated to go and win you know, your optional claimer somewhere in your language, a sort of naught to 60 handicap at Wolverhampton. But travel is a, a big factor in, in the UK. If you look at historically riders that have won our championship, it can often absolutely draw the guts out of them. And there's plenty that have never really been the same riders ever again. They have shortened the season for which the championship is contested now. At the same time, it is still a real drain. Your sort of on-track situation racing for periods of time at certain venues means that for your riders they're obviously riding a lot of work in the mornings and what have you but you don't have the endless hours on motorways which tends to typify british racing where you know if you have it's very unusual to have more than a two or three day meet particularly outside the top level and he just doesn't want to go and drive to wolverhampton even if he's riding a, a long odds on shot you'll see him ply his trade at newmarket newbury grade one courses looking at the better quality horses and look who you know it paid off perfectly that strategy and as a result he's probably got more longevity out of it but he'll never be motivated really to go in the long journey i think he went to kalani this year as a sort of you know, he arrived in a horse and carriage and there was lots of ceremony and lord knows what else and he, he likes that but he wouldn't have been going there for a specific you know for a specific course he would have just realized there was something nice to be gained by turning up and the pageantry that went with him riding. But no, that's the difference is he's motivated by quality horses. He knows what he needs to do to keep himself physically fit in order to give them the best possible rides. He's not motivated by ringing up for the favorite at seven or four at Wolverhampton on a Tuesday. Unfortunately, we won't see Enable here in the United States again, most likely to defend her Breeders' Cup Turf Championship, but there also may be some Frankie Dettori rides in that big fixture. That could also add to his Group 1 total. We appreciate the perspective so much, Richard Hoyles. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure, no problem at all, and I wish you all well over that. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, a tribute to the late, great Hall of Fame broadcaster Jack Whitaker, who made Thoroughbred Racing a major staple of his career. We'll relive our conversation with Jack Whitaker from last October, right after this. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. Hall of Fame broadcaster Jack Whitaker passed away recently. He made thoroughbred racing a major part of his staple, both at CBS in the 60s and 70s and ABC Sports in the 80s and 90s. Jack Whitaker broadcast the first Super Bowl as well as the Triple Crown campaign of the Great Secretariat. Jack Whitaker was known for his writing ability, which rivaled that of Ernest Hemingway, as well as his humanity and his presence. Last October, we were fortunate enough to spend an afternoon with the great Jack Whitaker, who was one of my heroes growing up. And in fact, the commentary I do at the end of each one of these podcasts is in some ways a tribute to the great Jack Whitaker, whose essays that he did almost off the cuff during ABC broadcasts were one of my great inspirations growing up. Here's our conversation with Jack Whitaker from last October. Now, I didn't know at all until recently about your having been a soldier. You were 20 years old. 
you found out you'd be headed to Normandy. What was that whole experience like? Well, I've been the luckiest guy you've ever interviewed. <laughs> I was lucky enough to join a crack outfit called the 2nd Armor Division. And I went with them from Omaha Beach to Berlin with two vacations, what we called million-dollar wounds. I was wounded twice, a little more than flesh wound, not life, but both wounds got me out of France over into England. Therefore, I missed the Hurricane Forest and the Battle of the Bulge, or you wouldn't be talking to me today. So I was so lucky that way. Did Normandy look to you like, you know, the movie Saving Private Ryan? I mean, what did it look like? Private Ryan was a very good uh, replication of it. What was it like being there? Well, I didn't go in on D-Day. I went in on D-plus-3. And uh, the most incredible thing, and I keep thinking back to it, there were 3,000 casualties. I never saw a dead body on the beach. However they cleared off all those dead bodies, I have no idea. But it was a tremendously psychological help for us. If you saw a lot of dead Americans, you're not going to feel too good. We were in a call, Repel Depot, Replacement Depot. And then I was assigned, thankfully, on D plus three to the second armor division and finally found a home. So I didn't know any of the people in the 29th division who were killed there or the 30th. Is it true that your division was led by General Patton? At one time at Fort Benning, yes. He was a two-star general head of the second armor division. What was it like working for him? I don't know. I wasn't with the division then. That was back in Georgia before he became a three-star general. What were your responsibilities then on D plus three? To get off the LST and climb the cliff and join the men and then wait and see where they were going to assign you. What ended up happening then once all of that played out? Well, they came around and picked me up and said, you're going to the second armor division and they're over here. So that's when I joined up with them. D plus three, June 9th. Now, you were honorably discharged in 45 around Thanksgiving time. How challenging was it to just pick up and return to civilian life after that? Very easy. (laughs) Oh, it was so good to get home and and realize that I got through it all right. And, uh, oh, that was no, no problem. The great Jack Whitaker is with us here on In the Gate. So you returned to your native Philadelphia, worked at WCAU Channel 10, and joined CBS. How did you get put on horse racing events? Well, Chris Schenkel was doing the New York Giants, the Masters, and the Triple Crown races for CBS Sports. He left to go to ABC. I inherited the Giants play-by-play, the Masters Tournament, and the Triple Crown. That's how I got it. The first race I ever did was the Kentucky Derby. Is that high entry, huh? Pretty good place to start. Now, each sport has its own 
rhythm, its own culture, its own cast of characters. What struck you about the racing subculture compared with the other sports that you covered? Well, my favorite story along those lines, Frank Graham and Red Smith were two great sports writers in New York and two great friends. And Frank Graham told Red Smith one day, Red, you ought to come out to the track. There are more stories out there than you can imagine. And Red had never run horse racing before and subsequently wrote so many great columns on horse racing because of the people that are in it. The, uh, you don't win much in horse racing. If you win 20%, you're fantastic. But the trainers, the jockeys, the owners, there are a million stories. That's what I loved about it. And one of the great ones, of course, was Secretariat. And you were there for CBS. What was that like? I was blessed again, like I was in the Army. I covered horse racing for CBS in the decade of the 70s, which arguably was one of the greatest decades in thoroughbred history. We had three triple crown winners. We had, oh, so in every division, in, in turf racing, in, in fillies, everything. Older horses, forego people, oh, it was a fantastic time. And, uh, again, there were so many great stories. But Secretariat, did he stand out amongst all of them, or was, to you, he just one of the great stories. Well, year before Secretary, it was a lovely horse named Reva Ridge, who would have won the Triple Crown, except it came up rainy on the Preakness, and he couldn't handle the mud. So we all heard the great record that Secretary, as a two-year-old, was doing. He was winning everything, and by big margins. And uh, so we looked forward to that, and then... He lost the Wood Memorial. Wood Memorial he lost, and then everybody started to get on him as gossip around the track will get. So when the Derby came up, everybody, oh, he's not going to win. Bold ruler, the roll arthritic, he's not going to make it, can't go a mile and a quarter, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, he astounded everybody with that marvelous Derby one minute and 59 seconds, et cetera. But up until then, it was, people were really knocking him. They were not convinced he was the great one. Haywood Hale Brune, who was another of your friends and oh, contemporaries. Oh, a great guy. He said, he spoke to Jack Nicholas, the golfer, on the day of the Belmont, and that Nicholas stood in front of his TV and cried. How did it affect you? You were there. I didn't cry, but I was exuberant, of course, because we were all rooting. Those the Tweedies were, became not friends, but close at the same time. And, uh, so, and it was such a great story. 31 lengths, for crying out loud. And uh, there was Mrs. Tweedy waving, and, and it was just one of the great days. Now... One of the not-so-great days that, unfortunately, you were also there for was Ruffian. What was it like to be there that oh, day? Oh, that was awful. Terrible. And uh, it's still terrible when I think about it. 
We were just absolutely astounded by it. And we kept hoping it was going to be all right and all right. And Hank Goldberg, one of our racing analysts and football analysts for a long time, a contemporary of yours, he said beforehand that match race should never have happened. There should never be one. Yeah. Did did you think that going in? Uh, well, I I had conversations with Frank Wright about it. He was against it too. Match races are whoever that's out first wins. But you know, running all out potentially for a mile and a quarter seems even though the horses were sturdier back then. Right. Now you moved to ABC in 1981. Was it a coincidence or not that Wide World started showing the Triple Crown races right around that time? No, I don't know. Coincidence, I think, but a happy one for me. (laughs) Your favorite memories or moments from covering horse racing? It could be a specific interview or a glance that you had one day or a particular person you'd encounter regularly. What are your favorite moments from covering racing? Going to the track in the morning, uh, hanging around the hedge, uh, Frank Frank Wright's barn at Belmont, and uh, watching the workouts, listening to the exercise boys, the come and go. That, that, that were my favorite moments. It doesn't matter what your age is, that's the same answer everybody gives. Now, you worked four Olympics, one for TNT, the Masters... NFL, of course, the very first Super Bowl. You know, for you, where does horse racing fit in with the sports that you've covered? Second. I like golf. The golf I've done has been the Opens and the Masters and and horses. Because the stories are there. There's so many great stories. And were it not for a couple of well-timed injuries... As you mentioned, suffered as a soldier, there's a chance that none of what we just discussed might have happened. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for doing this. Our thanks once again to the late, great Jack Whitaker, as well as to Richard Hoyles. Chad Brown won all three grade one races on Arlington Million Day. He's a mortal lock for his fourth straight Eclipse Award. But while he's quick to deflect his praise onto his assistants in the barn, with some assistance, Brown's accused of being untoward. The U.S. Labor Department says Chad Brown underpaid wages to the tune of over a million and a half to grooms and hot walkers who mainly come to the U.S. from other countries. They're called willful violations, not just gaps. The dispute comes down to the type of visas horse racing workers use. They're supposed to have an H-2B labor one. The other type, the H-2A, is an agricultural visa where making good money is harder to get done. Did Chad Brown know of this discrepancy yet do it anyway? He hasn't answered, but the government thinks so. In a tumultuous year for the sport marked by a lack of transparency, this won't help racing get where it wants to go. You can get us on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, or your podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. 
And again, we want to make sure you vote for us in the upcoming Fan Choice Awards at America's Best Racing. It happens in November after the Breeders' Cup, and Best Racing Podcast is indeed one of the categories. So you know what to do, ITG Army. If you like this show, vote for us in November in the Fan Choice Awards at americasbestracing.net. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's in the gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.